Everyone listening to this podcast has multiple digital customer experiences every week. Ordering something off of Amazon, you book some airline tickets online, uh, never speaking with an agent, uh, you deposit a check using your phone. These are all classified as B2C interactions. But all of those efficient, low-friction B2C interactions are changing the expectations of B2B customers. Right now, it is estimated that B2B e-commerce accounts for 13% of all B2B sales in the United States, and that number is expected to grow every year. And Forrester is predicting that in the next few years, customer experience will have surpassed price and product as the most important brand differentiator. So there is little doubt B2B companies need to be adept at engineering low-friction customer experiences. And for those listeners not familiar with TSIA, we are a for-profit research institute, and we are on a mission to help our member companies run profitable technology business models that unlock real business value for customers. Today, I will be joined by Dan Gingas, an expert in customer experience, and we will be discussing just how bad B2B companies are at customer experience and how we can make some much-needed improvements. So let's get into it today. And Dan, man, we are excited to have you here on Tectonic. Um, you're going to be keynoting in Vegas for us. Please introduce yourself to the Tectonic audience. Well, thanks so much for having me, Thomas. Super excited to be here and to meet you in Vegas. Uh, my name is Dan Gingas. Uh, my brand is The Experience Maker. And I spent more than 20 years in corporate America, mostly as a marketer, but eventually uh, evolving as a customer experience guy. I worked for companies you've probably heard of, Discover Card, McDonald's, Humana. And over time, I realized that instead of spending my time doing yet another marketing campaign, it was so much more efficient and productive to focus on our existing customers instead. We spend so much money trying to bring people in the door and so little money trying to keep them there. And yet we all have seen the same statistics. We know that it's so much less expensive to keep a customer than to get a new one, but we don't focus on them enough. And so in 2019, I went off on my own. I started the Experience Maker. And today I do keynote speeches, workshops, and other uh, trainings with companies, associations, and organizations, really trying to inspire people that customer experience doesn't have to be that hard. It doesn't have to be a multi-year, multi-million dollar transformational project. It can really just be a series of little things. And it's a long series. And in fact, it might be even a never ending series because as soon as we think we've gotten there, our customers are going to change their expectations. But CX is definitely something that any company can focus on. And I'm excited to talk specifically about B2Bs because one of the myths I'm going to break immediately is that B2Bs aren't that much different from B2Cs. Yeah. And you and I were talking about that reality, but we were also discussing the fact that B2C companies are so much better at engineering customer experience. And we are also asserting that B2B companies need to get better at this. So we're going we're gonna to discuss specific examples of where B2B companies have that opportunity to improve the customer experience. So let's get started. And, and the first one that I want to talk about are these handoffs. Let's talk about the buying process and the handoff from sales to customer success, which is, you know, customer success is pretty ubiquitous now in the technology industry. What, what are your concerns there? 
Well, first of all, I want to say that unless your customer success team's goal is the success of the customer, then you need to change the name of that organization. Having worked for a customer success team that was basically gold on sales alone, I didn't think that those really matched up with the priorities. Mm -hmm. But the handoff that you're talking about happens so often. You see, we buy from people that we like. At the end of the day, the buyer is a person. It's not a building. It's not a, a logo. It's not a corporation. It is a person that is buying your product or service, uh, even in the B2B space. And they're buying in part because they like the salesperson. Now, I equate it to a wedding. You walk down the aisle. You're so excited because you're tying the knot. And you get to the end of the aisle and the person at the other end says, well, just kidding. You're not marrying me. You're marrying Steve. And you're like, but hold on a second. I like you. That's why I'm here. And that's what we do in our handoff is Steve, in this case, is the customer success person. But the person that's supposed to be getting married is the salesperson. And so there's an easy way around this, which is I always suggest two things to salespeople. Number one, show up at the kickoff meeting. Just show up to the first meeting so that the new customer sees a friendly face. It's somebody that they've been working with the whole time. Secondly, tell the customer right up front that you're going to be there for them if anything goes wrong. Give them your contact information. Here's the funny thing. They'll almost never use it, but they're going to feel so much better that they can. And that is how we make an, a handoff happen a whole lot easier than it does today. And I actually want to back up your comment about customer success. If all they're focused on is sales, you know, that's a renewals team. That's not a customer success team. And, and you're right. That happens in the industry where people have that title and there's no focus on the actual you know, success of the customer. It's just commercials, not the winning model. But what are your thoughts in terms of what you just described there, introducing customer success earlier in the sales cycle? So it's not what you just described, walking down the aisle and getting handed off. It's like, oh, actually, I met met this person, you know, weeks ago or whatever, I, I have a relationship there as well. What, what do you see there? When is the right time to introduce that new person to the customer? Yeah, I think some companies are really starting to back that up. And I think it's really smart that the customer success team becomes a little bit an offshoot of the sales team. And the sales team is sort of an offshoot of the customer success team. And to the customer, what they're seeing is, I got a team behind me. And that makes me feel good. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I think we talked about offline is what happens immediately after a new client signs a contract. And it's hilarious that almost every B2B that I've spoken to, there's some sort of celebratory moment. Either everybody goes out for drinks or they ring a bell or they have a Slack channel where they celebrate. But in all of those cases, the guest of honor is not invited. The new client. And so what we've got to do from a customer experience or client experience perspective is put ourselves in that client's shoes. So the client's going to go home to their spouse or significant other in one of two ways. They're either going to go home saying, oh my gosh, I just signed a giant contract today. I hope I made the right decision. We were looking at three different companies. If I screw this up, I'm going to get fired. Or they go home and they say, oh my gosh, I signed this giant contract today. I couldn't be more excited. This is the best company. They've got my back. They're going to make sure that this works and I'm going to get promoted. Which way would you rather your client go home? 
And the thing is, is when we don't invite them to the celebration, they're much more likely to go home that first way. It's not that they're not excited. It's that they're nervous because they just made a big decision. And we're always nervous when we make a big decision. And like consumers, we also often have some bit of buyer's remorse. You know, we finally made the decision and now it's like, uh uh-oh, now what? And so the more that we can put our literal or figurative arm around the new customer and say, you just made the best decision of your career. And here's this whole team that is here to support you. And our whole job is to make sure that you're successful. That allows the new client to kind of let their hair down and be comfortable. Yeah. I mean, when we were talking about this, you know, I was just thinking, I wonder what percentage of tech companies after that deal is signed, sends anything to their main buyer, you know, whether it's an email reinforcing what a great decision, whether it's a bottle of wine, whether it's a thank you card, anything like that, that really, like you said, reinforces that they made a good decision, makes them feel good about that. And also the appreciation that, hey, you know, we're really uh, appreciate the fact that you're putting your trust in us, right, as a technology provider here. You know, I, I don't have any stats on that. I mean, what do you think? Less than 10%? Less, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I've never received one. <laughs> I think that's definitely a minority practice for sure. Yeah, I'm sure it's very small. I want to give your listeners a very easy tip and a very easy way to do this. There's a company that I absolutely love, and I interviewed the CEO for my book, The Experience Maker. The company's called Punk Post. And all it does, it's so simple. You go onto their website or app and you say, hey, I want to send a thank you note to Thomas because he's my newest client. And you type in what it is that you want to say to Thomas. And they hire an artist to hand write the card and also hand address the envelope. The result is literally a work of art. Mm -hmm. It is absolutely beautiful. We talk in marketing about open rate on, on emails, right? This has 100% open rate because if you get this thing in the mail, just the envelope is so beautiful, you have to open it. And what the CEO told me is that the vast majority of people who receive a punk post card save it. They put it up on their bulletin board. They put it up on their refrigerator at home. It's not like a thank you email, which immediately gets delete next. It's something that is remembered Mm -hmm. again and again. And the cost of a punk post, and no, I don't work for them, nor do I get any commissions off of them. Uh, But the cost of a punk post is about Mm -hmm. the same as buying a Hallmark (laughs) card and putting a stamp on it. Very reasonable. Yeah. No, that's a great example. And then, you know, after this initial thank you and that acknowledgement to a new customer, you and I were talking about waiting. The, the fact that there, you know, there is often a lag between the time you make a decision, you're going to, you know, yeah, we're going to implement this new technology solution and the time you actually are going to get started. And, you know, what you said is B2C companies have figured out that you should be taking advantage, if you will, of that waiting time and not leaving that a complete void for the customer experience. So talk about sort of the lessons there that you think B2B companies could onboard. Yeah, waiting is such an interesting thing because nobody likes to wait. And yet, there are occasions when waiting isn't so bad. In fact, when waiting even might be great. One of the B2C examples I love to talk to with B2B companies is Universal Studios in Orlando. You might be familiar with Harry Potter World, but there's a new trend going on of people standing in line at the Harry Potter rides. These are 45-minute, hour-long lines. 
But here's the kicker. They don't actually want to go on the ride. You see, Universal has made waiting in line so exciting because you get to walk through Hogwarts Castle. You get to engage with Mm -hmm. the characters. You see the animated pictures on the wall, just like in the movies. So people are literally volunteering to go through this line and then getting to the front and saying, yeah, no, thanks. I don't really like roller coasters. I don't want to go on this ride. And so you think about, okay, you're not in the amusement park business, but where do you make your customers wait? And how can you make the waiting part a whole lot more interesting? Maybe there's a tutorial that they can go through, a fun introduction to your platform. Maybe they can start having some uh, beginning conversations about strategy and goals. Maybe you can give them a survey to fill out. Something where they're busy and it doesn't necessarily feel like waiting uh, is going to make a really big difference for people. Because ultimately, these things do take time and, and that's okay. Uh, One other example I want to share with you was actually a a case study that I did in business school. And this was of a micro lender that was basically soliciting $500,000 loans from people and then giving the money to women in Africa to start their own businesses. And it was successful. But one of the things that they were finding was that most people weren't renewing. What they wanted in terms of a renewal was, hey, you made a a micro loan, you got your money back and some interest, and now we'd like you to make another loan. And when they studied this, they figured out that the reason people weren't renewing was that absolutely nothing was happening between when they made the loan and when the loan got repaid. So to solve for this, they gave the women in Africa video cameras. And they basically on a regular basis, sent video updates of what was going on with their business and how the money was helping them grow their business. Now, instead of waiting a year for my money to come back, I'm getting engaged every month. I'm establishing a relationship with not only this micro lender, but with the woman in Africa. And what they found was that not only did they get almost 100% renewal rate after that, but that people were making multiple loans because now they saw the power of where their money was going. And so all they did was fill in the blank space, but you know, which was almost a year long, where literally nothing was happening, and they turned it into an experience. B2Bs can do the same thing. And I think there's two natural opportunities in, in the customer lifecycle. So one is they've signed up, but they haven't quite yet started yet. What could you be sending them, like you said, whether you're, you're starting them on the journey of education, whatever it is, but they feel like they're actually making some progress, even though they haven't actually started and then once they start, if you think about, and this is the concept of, of time to value, getting customers value as quickly as possible, you know, often there's a lag there before, let's say there's a big update with the person who bought it or the executive team. Hey, we installed this thing six months ago, a year ago. Here's where we're at. I think what you're saying is give them the little tidbits along the way <laughs> saying, hey, your company just got 20 more people on this system or you just put your 100,000th record in here and here's the advantage of that. But letting them sort of have these markers of progress along the way, you know, and they don't have to be this big bang. Here's a, a massive executive report about what we've done and you had to wait six months for that. We're going to let you know about these little important victories along the way and just make that part of the conversation that we're having. And, and so I think it's a great lesson there. I think there's a lot of opportunities. And a lot of this has to do with how you're thinking about 
your customer, right? You have your customer's perspective, which is about empathy. And I think there's a lot of opportunities for tech companies to insert more empathy into how they're interacting with their customers. But how do you do that? How do you make that a key capability for a company? What's your perspective there? Well, empathy is really at the core of great customer experience. And it's about understanding your customers, understanding how they're feeling, what emotions are going through their head, um, possible barriers, et cetera. What I like about what you just said with the updates is that it's really doing two things. It's kind of celebrating uh, certain moments, that milestones that you've hit. But it's also updating on progress because ultimately the reason why somebody bought your SaaS platform was because they wanted to accomplish X. And so if we can tell them, here's how you're accomplishing X, you are reinforcing the value of your product without really sounding like you're selling them on a renewal, right? And so if every time we sign a new person, uh, Mm -hmm. a new license up, it saves the company $200, well, then we should have a calculator that shows how much money we've saved the company because they have 10,000 employees signed up. If the idea is to save time, then we should be calculating how much time we're saving because of each record that's been put into our system, et cetera. And now this person has something they can go to bring to their boss to say, this is why we pay these guys this money because we're getting this out of it. But the best way that I have found to Uh, to understand empathy. And I agree, this is a little bit harder in the B2B space. But if you can at all, my first suggestion is always to become a customer of your own company. And what do I mean by that? I mean that if you have a SaaS platform that requires a login, then you yourself, salesperson or customer success person, better have a login. And by the way, you should forget your password and try to go through that process because it's probably terrible. Do the things that your customers do Mm -hmm. and see it from their perspective versus from the perspective of it's it's like looking in a mirror, right? You look at it from one direction, but we need to look at it from the other direction. If I could give a little bit more obvious example, I did a lot of work in the dentistry industry. And what I found was that by and large, dentists position their private offices in the back of the practice. And then they usually have a back door. So the dentist every morning comes in through the back door into his or her office. And what I've told dentists is stop doing that, or at least stop doing that a couple times a week. I want you to walk in the front door because that's what your patients see. And when you walk in the front door, you're going to notice that, you know, it's Mm -hmm. dirty or that the magazines haven't been updated in a couple of years, or that the lighting is bad, or you're out of coffee, or whatever it is, you're never going to see that if you walk in the back door. So even with B2Bs, try to become a customer of your own company. If that's impossible, then the next best case is to attach yourself at the hip to one of your actual customers and to watch them as they go through the process, to talk Mm -hmm. with them, to Um, Have them talk with you and and hear their reaction in real time with their own voice. And that will get you to start to feel empathy. Quick example there, when I was at Discover, I spent a lot of time uh, in the contact centers listening to customer service calls. There is nothing like listening to an actual customer call in because you can hear the emotion in their voice. You can hear how frustrated they are. Uh, You can hear how they describe the problem. That never comes out in a report. It's almost impossible to gauge emotion in a printed report. 
But if you're listening or you're talking one-on-one and hearing somebody, now you can have that empathy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think on you know, the empathy side of one thing I'd play back what you said is, again, using your own portals, using, you know, going through the processes that you're making your customers go through. I think that's definitely, you know, a best practice. So you understand, you know, where the friction is. The other thing with empathy and B2B, which I, I see companies leaning into more is, so for example, if you're working, you know, with a retailer and you have a, you have a solution for a retailer, recruiting people from retail who really understand what it is to be on the floor and, you know, what a day looks like. And they're part of your customer success organization or they're part of the product team. So this this concept of really being more specialized at a vertical level, I think that unlocks empathy. Because when you're making a solution that is a blunt instrument that goes across, you know, a lot of vertical industries and you don't really know what the customer is trying to do, what's different from one vertical to another, it's tough to be empathetic. But if you now have people on your team that are like, dude, you don't know what you're making them do here, right? This is what a busy day looks like for that type of person. Um, I think that that is an accelerator, hopefully. So those skill sets are important for sure. And and again, I I do see more tech companies getting serious about that. I want to move to messaging. Communications from B2B companies to their customers, they have a tendency to lead with what we call feature functionality, you know, technical benefits or business benefits, right? Hey, if you install this, it's going to save you X amount of money, et cetera. But they rarely hit on emotions. And this is sort of tied into that empathy thing, right? So, so when it comes to buying a technology solution, customers can feel skeptical, nervous, you know, afraid, maybe bullish. But, but how can B2B companies better tap into the emotional aspects of buying a solution? Because that's clearly something that B2C companies that sell technology, man, they get that, right? They know how to really tap into emotion. Yeah. And I think a lot of this comes from that marketing has, the best marketing is really promising an experience. If you think about if you watched the last Super Bowl and you watched the commercials, I mean, most of the commercials are about this is how it's going to feel when you drive our car or when you drink our beer or when you come to our vacation spot. Like, that's what it's about. It is trying to tell you that feeling, Mm -hmm. promise you that feeling, uh, and then you obviously want to go do it. I think with uh, technology, that feeling is sometimes there, sometimes not. The feelings may be different. They may be less emotional and more towards, I just want something to be easy. I want something to be fast. I want something that I understand and that isn't difficult to decipher, et cetera. But those are all feelings too. And I think that we can tie together what it is that we promise and what it is that we're actually delivering. Uh, And then as we were talking about before, when you drive home, the actual benefit, not the promised benefit, but here's what you, client, have gotten out of this relationship, then it becomes a whole lot easier to have that discussion about a renewal because there's a value attached to the dollars. The first time that you are selling them, it's hard to tell that value. They have to take that value on faith. But after they've been a customer, if you can't prove the value to them, then what are you doing asking them to renew? Before the value piece, I want to go back to the emotion piece. And I'm sitting here thinking about, you know, B2B versus B2C. So I think we're all familiar with one of the Apple commercials where the people were dancing very emphatically, emotionally with the new iPhone. It was like very colorful and just like nothing but joy, right? Oh my gosh, I've got this new product. I'm dancing around. This is so great, right? So that's an example of tapping into emotion, right? You want this thing because you're going to feel that great if you have this phone. I'm just sitting here thinking equivalent of, of, of B2B. So let's take something like 
cybersecurity, right? You're, you're providing that kind of solution. I can imagine, you know, a, a commercial, a video, marketing video, whatever, where, you know, you are showing somebody who is working in the data center and they've just been hacked and like sweat is pouring down there, you know, and they're so upset and so nervous and you you tap into a vers- visceral emotion of, look, you don't want this to happen to you. Right. And that's what is opposed to saying, hey, we've got this cybersecurity product and it has these features and it guarantees that again is feature functionality, which doesn't tap into the emotion of why do people buy that? Because they're scared to death of being in that scenario. Right. And so going right at that emotion and saying, this is what we're going to prevent, this is what we're going to help with, I think is a simple example of how B2B companies don't do that. Maybe they don't think that's professional enough. Maybe I don't think that's, you know, that's a B2B look, but I, I think there's some there there in terms of building both brand and relationship with customers to say, that's what we're going to help you with. You know, we're going to help attack that particular emotion. Have you ever seen a good B2B example of on emotion? I'm, I'm, racking yeah, my I'm trying to think of a good emotion there and, <laughs> and it's tough to find one. Um, I remember I downloaded a white paper from Marketo once, which is a marketing uh, tech company. And in the white paper, along with all of the you know, information that they promised, there was a word search that had marketing terms. Right. And there was, I think, a color by number. And mm-hmm. I think what they were trying to do was just evoke a sense of playfulness that, you know, this doesn't have to be burdensome. This can be fun. And yes, it's work. We all call it's called work for a reason, but it doesn't mean that it can't have fun. I, I'd say that's the closest I've gotten. Um, but I would go back to what the, sort of the scenarios I was explaining before of how people feel when they sign that contract and, and how they're going to go home and talk to their significant other. And I think yeah. it's not that hard to get into the shoes of a customer at that point. Uh, and then the question is, uh, wh- what other points can we get into their shoes? I mean, we've all had the experience of forgetting a password and then not being able to reset it. Or, uh, you know, I love when I'm trying to reset a password uh, when I'm, you know, in the air trying to get the Wi-Fi going and I need to reset my password for the Wi-Fi company, but I can't do that because I can't access my phone and I can't access the Wi-Fi. And it's like, didn't anybody ever think about how horrible this this is or what people are going to feel when they go through it? Well, as I listen to you, yeah, yeah, I mean, this emotion of frustration. Huge emotion. And that's something in, you know, in B2B that we all deal with. Every day. Right. And that's a big one, right? So you say, you know, so if you set that up and say, look, we've got an offer that yeah, we think about this. We're going to take that frustration away. I think that's a big one that people could tap into for sure. So yeah, I, th- I think there's tons of opportunity in, in messaging. Absolutely. And I, I want to point you to one of my favorite statistics, which is that the number one impact on customer loyalty, according to the Harvard Business Review, the, most, the number one most important factor mm-hmm. is reducing customer effort. So if we think about everything that we do in the B2B space mm-hmm. as trying to make things easier for the customer, and there's so many examples where we're doing exactly the opposite. We're handing them reams of paperwork. We're making them go through hours right. of training. We're building dashboards and stuff that make total sense to our designers and coders, but that just aren't intuitive to the customer. And so if you look at everything through reducing customer effort, that avoids those emotions of frustration. 
And that's going to be a, a big way to turn around you know, into a more positive emotion. Yeah. I mean, we have this phrase in our, in our last book, digital hesitation, complexity kills. And you know, our assertion there is that to what you're just saying, you've got to ring out complexity for the customer. And again, as we're talking here, here today, I think that B2B companies have to take that way more seriously. And there's no successful B2C company that has tons of complexity and friction in their model. <laughs> they're just, they're, they're not around, right? They're, they're not successful. I mean, they, they have to, you know, that, that is do or die for them. And I think B2B companies, that's not been true, especially in tech, um, but it's becoming more true. You know, and it's interesting. Another thing you and I were, were talking about the other day was, was websites. The difference between, you know, B2C websites and B2B. And what, what was your observation there? And when you when you look, when you go from B2B website to website, yeah, so there was I was telling you about a study that I shared in my book that I just thought was amazing. The long and short of it is it was a web design agency and they were trying to get their B2B client to change the navigation labels at the top. And the client wouldn't do it because they wanted the same navigation labels as everybody else. You've seen them, products, services, resources, solutions, etc. So the agency took matters into their own hands and commissioned a survey of something like 2,500 people. And they created a fake website with those same top navigation labels. And they asked the customers or the, the, the survey respondents, they asked them for three different things. Like, where would you find this? If you were looking for this on the website, where would you go find it? If you were looking for pricing, where would you go find it, et cetera? And what they found was an absolute mess that basically <laughs> all five choices at the top, 20% of the respondents chose. Right. Like there was literally, they, they, no one could figure out where to go. And so the, the lesson is that just because everybody else has those same navigation labels doesn't mean they're the right ones to have. And it doesn't mean that customers understand yeah, them. It's not the best practice. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, but it's, it's funny because we always want to be like the successful players in our industry. And, you know, I, it's funny because every brand that I worked for was a follower brand until I went to McDonald's. It's the first number one brand I had ever worked for. And the perception is completely, completely different. And I think that in tech, what happens is if you're, I don't know, playing in any sandbox that Salesforce is playing in, you want to be like Salesforce. Well, why wouldn't you be, right? One of the biggest and most successful companies mm -hmm. in the world. But don't assume that everything Salesforce does is right for your customer. It might be right for their customers. It might not be. Who knows? But it, but don't assume that's right for your customer. And and looking simply to your biggest competitor for inspiration on how to do things is not what I advise. That's why I bring in stories from Universal Studios and other places to find that inspiration. I completely agree. And think if you're a B2B tech company and you are looking at your direct competitors to determine where the bar is for good customer experience, I don't think that's the winning strategy to your point. I mean, you've got to have cast a much wider lens in terms of seeing what really exemplar, you know, interactions look like. Um, because again, I, I do not think, you know, B2B tech companies are setting, you know, the bar in terms of what, what, what can get done. So uh, I'm going to pause, there. I'm going to play back some of the thoughts here, right? So, so, you know, we talked about engineering the handoffs, you know, again, thoughts around creating a better customer experience engineering the handoffs, reinforcing the buying decision for the customer after they've, they've bought, turning waiting times you know, into experience opportunities, 
really working on instilling empathy into your employees, thinking about emotions that matter in your messaging, thinking about, you know, things like your website, just not following what everybody else is doing, but are you really making it easy for your customer? I have to ask, you know, so these are all things about improving the customer experience. What are your thoughts on the economics of customer experience? So let's say companies say, okay, fine, I can invest in those kind of things. I can quote, create a better customer experience. Where's the there there? What, why is this, you know, what's the ROI? What's your response to that? Well, my first response is if there's no ROI, we shouldn't be doing it. So to the customer experience, customer success people out there that can't answer this question, I would say you're in the wrong field, right? It's just like we don't do a marketing campaign unless we can prove what the results are. How many people did we bring in the door or watch our ad? How much do we grow our audience? And so make no doubt about it. We do customer experience, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because it helps grow the business. And so the first thing is we've got to look past I would say, traditional customer experience metrics. Things like customer satisfaction scores, NPS scores, these are good. They tell you how you're doing at a point in time. But the problem is they don't tell you why. So I've watched so many companies get stuck in, well, hey, our NPS score went down two points this month. And everybody looks at each other like, well, it must be the weather or it must be COVID or well, we don't really know. And then the next month it bounces back up and everybody's like, woohoo, we're the best. We got a high NPS score, but they don't know why that happened either. So we got to move past those numbers to start getting at the bottom line numbers. So first place that I think you should look is either customer retention rate or the opposite of it, which is customer churn rate. How many people are staying with you and how many people are leaving? Very simple to measure. And since you probably have already measured the lifetime value of a customer, you multiply it by that. And we can put this right into dollars and cents. Now we can go have a conversation with the CEO to say, hey, because of our customer experience efforts this month, we retained 100 more customers than we would have. And each customer is worth $1,000. And so, boom, look at the money that we're generating for this company or look at the money that we're saving for this company. So, whenever we translate into dollars and cents is where we're going to get the C-suite paying the most attention. Now, one of my favorite studies uh, was done by Watermark Consulting a couple of years ago, and they looked at one of the biggest third-party indicators of customer experience, which is the Forrester Customer Experience Index. It comes out every year, and it rates companies Mm -hmm. across lots of different industries. And Watermark decided to look only at public companies and specifically at stock price over a 13-year period. okay, And what they found was that each and every year, as well as in aggregate, the customer experience leaders far outperformed the market. Mm -hmm. The customer experience laggards far trailed the market. And the leaders beat the laggards by three times. Mm -hmm. Now, we know that stock price, there's a lot of things that go into it. But at the end of the day, the biggest thing that goes into it is profitability. So if you're telling me that the best people at customer experience also happen to have the best stock returns and that's a coincidence, I'm not buying. (laughs) That's a direct correlation. And I think it's it's also, it's highly intuitive, right? Because think about, again, ourselves as individuals and again, consumers, we gravitate to people that provide us a good experience and we don't go back and revisit people that provided us a crappy experience. I mean, that's just the way, that's human physics, right? And that clearly translates into a to a b2b world right so what you're saying makes a lot of sense hey companies that consistently get got rated with providing a better 
lower friction, you know, customer experience over time do better in the marketplace. I mean, that just makes sense. But at the same time, I think companies, at least again, in the B2B world have been resistant to say, I really need to lean into that because I believe that ROI is there. I think they've been able to get away with an okay <laughs> customer experience and, and still sometimes have good stock prices, still have sometimes good growth, et cetera. But again, our point of view is that that world is changing. The bar is getting, getting higher here for B2B companies. And again, if you are at the bottom, you know, that's not going to be, that's no bueno. Well, yeah. And I think if we take a second to break it down, profitability is simply revenue and expenses. And so what customer experience does on the revenue side is it brings in more customers because people want to do business with companies that treat them well. Those customers stay longer, they spend more, and they refer people. So we are growing and bringing in more money. But also what customer experience does is it reduces costs. Because for example, if you want to get rid of your entire customer service department, just make customer experience perfect. Because why does anyone ever call in when the customer experience isn't working? <laughs> so the lack of a customer experience drives cost into the business, and we can reduce that cost by fixing things. Uh, I used to show a direct connection. These were my favorite charts to show my boss when I was at Discover. I worked really closely with the contact center. And let's say we had a problem on the website where, I don't know, some page wasn't working. Well, the contact center could tell me, hey, we've gotten 50 calls just this morning on that page not working. And so we would chart out the number of calls that were coded with this problem. And then the next day, we'd flip the switch where we fixed the problem, and you would see the chart absolutely fall off a cliff. You know, it was like hundreds of calls every day, and now zero calls every day. Woohoo! And again, you know the cost of a call, you multiply it out, and you can say with that one little change, we just saved the company tens of thousands of dollars. So, that's how we mm-hmm. prove the ROI is we bring it down to dollars and cents. It's either increasing revenues or reducing expenses. Well, I, I really appreciate you uh, stopping in today, spending time with us. I, I look you know, forward to your keynote in Vegas. I think we're going to have a great time there in a, in a couple weeks. And I always end uh, these, these uh, episodes here with a question of the day. And so every day, B2C companies are making it easier for their customers to get what they want. Why aren't you doing the same exact thing? Thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.